Hello, and welcome to Trek in Time, the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. What we're doing is we're watching each episode of Star Trek in chronological order, and we're also taking a look at how things were in the world at the time of the original broadcast. And then we'll also take a deeper dive into something either about the episode or about the world that the episode dropped in. You're wondering who's going to be doing this talking? It's going to be me, Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I've got books that have some sci-fi elements. And with me is my brother. He's the tech guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. You want to say hi, Matt? Hi, Matt. And he takes me so literally. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget, you can directly support the podcast. You can go to pod.fan slash trek dash in dash time and you'll find a link there where you can support us. You can also just simply keep doing what you're doing right now, which is either watching us on YouTube or listening to us on your favorite podcast provider. Before we get into the newest episode, wanted to share some comments from our previous ones. Matt, what have you got? Well, there was a Nickelback fight. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about how Nickelback has had the number one song for a few weeks now. And uh, Sean and I were focus of fun at Nickelback and somebody named who is this wrote insult Nickelback one more time <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a great response and then Pale Ghost who's a regular listener said you know why Nickelback only has four band members if they had five they would be a quarterback <laughs> <laughs> by the way Nickelback is mediocre at best now we poke fun at Nickelback and I know there's gonna be Nickelback fans so we're just having fun, but I thought that was the best response. <laughs> Quarterback. <Yeah. laughs> uh, the the other comment I wanted to bring up was from new listener listener um, Mark Chromic. I th- hope I said your name right. Um, he commented about being a first time listener, but the question that he was kind of raising about the episode "Dear Doctor" episode, which is the one where Flox and Captain Archer were having that kind of discussion about like, should we save this? species or should we just let nature take its course uh he said but my question really is is evolution strictly our dna is it not also how we apply our knowledge we live in deserts in the southwest parts of the united states not because we adapted our bodies to live there we invented air conditioning very few star trek species evolved to live in space through changes in their dna they developed technology to live in space is it not the ability to fix species ending errors in our dna part of evolution And at the end of his comment, he said, learning to overcome deficiencies in DNA could be part of the philosophical evolution. Perhaps the society of these two alien species could have one day adapted to live together. Thanks for the podcast. Loved it. I will subscribe. So thank you, Mark. And I want to get your thoughts on that. I mean, he raised some interesting kind of philosophical questions. And for those of you who don't know, Sean is a philosophy major from college <laughs> i was very curious what your what your take was on yeah i think that um first i think if you become a philosophy major in college you're doing that because you know of all the jobs that are going to be available to you after you graduate <laughs> uh i i really did like this comment quite a bit and i think that it raises it raises an issue that you and I didn't address directly and neither did the episode, but it is effectively at the heart of what the episode is about, Mm -hmm. which is their discussion at the end is do we stand by and let nature take its course or do we step in? And so the adaptability that Mark 
raises in his question is happening twofold. It's happening on the planetary level in the sense of adapting to make up for some deficiency in your DNA has to happen for the one species that's trying to survive. Mm -hmm. So can that happen? It's also happening aboard the Enterprise through the discussion that the doctor and the captain are having where they are dealing with, they are evolving. Their thinking is evolving. Their culture aboard a starship is evolving and Starfleet's culture is evolving. And that's one of the things you and I keep talking about in these episodes is the most interesting aspect of a prequel like Enterprise is not the, oh, look, we've used the phaser for the first time or, Mm -hmm. oh, it's called a transporter for some reason. It's questions around when do you get the prime directive? How do you manufacture thinking that is day in, day out, just part of the air that they breathe in the original series and in series like Star Trek Next Generation or Voyager? But where here, they're having to literally make up something that is not inherent in their DNA. And Phlox is demonstrating his response to the issues on that planet. He doesn't quite connect to it in the same way that the humans do. He doesn't have the same response to things like romantic love and questions around coupling and what does a commitment in a relationship look like? He reveals that his people's experience with marriage and partnering is very different from what the human uh, cutler's expectations might be. So you're seeing in that discussion on the romantic level, that kind of conversation around how much of this is biologically driven and how much of it is culturally driven. Mm -hmm. And that's happening again on the planetary scale. And then it's happening on the philosophical scale of Starfleet itself as the captain and the doctor are having that discussion. I think it's a great, great comment that Mark has, has made because it taps into all of those veins in a very interesting way. Well, well, could you also argue that if they had stepped in and solved the DNA problem, that is nature taking its course? You could, you could absolutely, and I think the episode we're about to talk about today also carries with it a little bit of that. And I think maybe it's a part of, of Star Trek as a whole. Deciding that you will have a prime directive that will keep you from doing certain things in certain circumstances and leaving the door open in other circumstances is a little bit like saying, well, I'm apolitical. Hmm. Trying to be apolitical is a political stance. Having a prime directive is in fact having an impact on those cultures that you're saying you don't want to impact because that culture that you're not impacting is not in a bubble. It is a part of, the galactic community. And so if we had a country on this planet that was in complete isolation and refused to talk to any of its neighbors, uh, in the Marvel universe, it would be Wakanda. You know, a, a country that was completely isolated to the point of people not knowing much, if anything, about it. Their decision to remain isolated, the, their decision not to share technology with the people around them, 
may start from a non-invasive philosophy, but their decisions to do that does have an impact on the larger world, regardless right. yep. of the motivation behind it. And I think that that's one of the things that I think the tip of that iceberg uh, comes above the water in the episode we're going to talk about today in an interesting yep. way. Yep. So let's transition now to talking about that episode. This is, it's episode 15, The Shadows of Pajem. This episode was directed by Mike Vijar. This is his third episode this season. He also directed the episode Unexpected, which, of course, we shall never forget. That's the episode with a very pregnant trip. And Three he nipples. also directed Civilization. And there's a bit of, a bit of overlap here with Civilization because Shadows of Pajem was, the story was written by Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, of course, the show creators. But the teleplay was by Mike Sussman and Phyllis Strong, and they wrote the episode Civilization. That episode dealt with the pre-warp civilization and a thieving mining operation of a more advanced species hiding on the planet. And I think that there is a number of recurring themes there mm -hmm. uh, among the this episode, Shadows of Gem, and those previous episodes. We'll touch on those in a moment. This episode aired on February 6, 2002. It had just over 6 million viewers, so a little bit up from the previous, previous episode. And the world this landed in included the ongoing soundtrack, <laughs> How You Remind Me, by Nickelback. Matt and I will refrain from piling on any more than we have already. From now on, they are quarterback. Yes. <laughs> the super group that we've all dreamed of. And for the third week in a row, Black Hawk Down was still number one at the box office. It added another $11 million to its take. And the most watched program on television this week, paltry 45 million people in the U.S. tuned in to watch the opening ceremony of the 2002 Winter Olympics. And... This happened on February 8th, 2002. So this was the first Olympics to follow the 9-11 attacks and the fact that they took place in the United States offered U.S. President George W. Bush an opportunity to be the host welcoming everybody to the Olympics. And he opened them with a speech which included his thanks on behalf of a proud, determined, and grateful nation and then the standard opening sequences followed from that. And I remember watching these and being struck by the mixture of uh, patriotism with the inclusion of the tattered flag that had flown at ground zero, mm -hmm. as well as the mixture of history, which in the U.S. For, in Utah included lots of representation of indigenous peoples. And in the New York Times on the day this episode aired, one of the headlines was actually about a debate between the U.S. and the International Olympic Commission around the role of the tattered flag from ground zero. The Olympic Committee's argument was it is too political a statement and if it was included too intimately in the opening sequence, 
Originally, the U.S. wanted the flag to be carried in by the Olympians themselves, as opposed to simply being present. And the Olympic Committee said that would open up questions and requests from countries around the world moving forward to include elements of tragedies that would occur in the future, and it would potentially become a political argument. So that was the reason the Olympic Committee pushed back. There was also a headline about the financial wizard tied to Enron's fall. I thought it was interesting that they referred to this person as a wizard when it was referring to the fact that it didn't work and Enron fell apart. (laughs) But there you go. There was also a headline about Colin Powell, then Secretary of State, who was working to build an arms pact with Russia to try and limit nuclear weapons. So the shadows of Pajem, the episode we're about to talk about. Matt, do you want to give us a quick synopsis? Sure. Captain Archer and Subcommander T'Pol are kidnapped while en route to a planet uh, in the Cordon, Cordian system. Is that right? Cordon. Cordon system. I can, I can speak. <laughs> Which results in a confrontation between Vulcan and Endorian forces. So once again, this episode takes place in the fall of 2151. The next episode is going to be dated November 9th, 2151. So I'm assuming that this episode takes place sometime in October. And the episode begins with the Vulcan delegation on Earth, which is headed by Ambassador Saval, meeting with Admiral Forrest to complain about the incident at Pajem. Pajem was the Vulcan monastery, which in a previous episode, the Enterprise visited. And during their visit, they discovered that Andorians had captured all the monks and then some of the Enterprise crew were taken hostage as well. It was the Andorian incident is the episode and it introduced Commander Shrak and played by Jeffrey Combs, who comes back in this episode brilliantly. Um, The Vulcans are complaining that Captain Archer is to blame for the incident at Pajem. Pajem, it turns out, the Andorians uh, brought some ships back and gave the Vulcans a few hours to get out, and then they bombed it into dust, which, okay. Questionable. Yeah. (laughs) Questionable act. Uh, But their response when later on in the episode, when Archer finds out about this, Archer's response is, I can understand why they did this. This, that makes sense. Yeah. I don't agree with it, but I understand where they're coming from. They're, they're dealing with a level of anger and treaty breakage, which deserved some response. But yeah. in the meeting between Saval and the Admiral, Saval makes the argument that Archer should not be in command of the Enterprise and suggests another name, which I thought was very interesting. It's not a name who's popped up previously Pepper. as far as I can recall. <laughs> No. And Admiral Forrest's immediate response, which I really liked, was Vulcans don't get to pick who commands our starships. That's not how this works. There, there, was, there was one problem I had with the argument that um, the Vulcans were making. This is one of those, Vulcans are supposed to be logical and argue from a place of logic. And the argument here had, to me, had no legs to stand on, considering they were breaking a treaty with a neighbor and it doesn't matter if they think the Andorians are dangerous or not. They broke a treaty. So the fact they got caught 
doesn't mean it's Captain Archer's fault. And so it's like, I don't understand the leaps of logic that they're making in their argument. It seemed completely, it seemed convenient from a writing point of view to me that they were taking this tact where they didn't have a strong argument in my book. Well, I think we'll, I think we'll get back to some of that in some of the details of the episode a little bit later on in my research. I found I'll jump into it now. As a matter of fact, I'll just jump forward with something I was going to bring up later. Um, in a 2004 interview with Cinema Fantastique, Cine Fantastique magazine, Jolene Blaylock criticized this episode as an example of the inconsistency and discontinuity that undermined the series saying that they made this huge story about how Vulcans were undermining Starfleet and had some kind of agenda, but they never went on to readdress it. Mm -hmm. And I think that what you've just pointed out is, I think I agree with you. It was done from a convenience and a writer's perspective of, we want to get this story going in this direction and kind of putting in a discussion of contention between Vulcans and humans because it serves the story, but it ignored, you have one of two responses to it. Either it's an inconsistency in Vulcan logic that's a problem from a Star Trek universe perspective, or it's the introduction of what could be a very interesting line of storytelling around the Vulcans, and it's a missed opportunity. I actually think this is the second. A missed opportunity. I think it's a missed opportunity because as we go into the episode a little bit deeper, we'll get to some other examples of what I'm going to talk about briefly right now. They effectively are setting up the idea that through a series of logical hoops, Vulcans have achieved effectively an empire mm -hmm. in the galaxy, which they are looking at as being altruistic because it has been logically arrived at. They do things not based on emotional response, but on reasoned logic. So breaking the treaty with the Andorians made sense because the Andorians are volatile. Right. Withholding technology from the humans makes sense logically because you don't know what might happen if the humans grab it and run out into the galaxy and start doing stuff with it. They're not prepared. And in this episode in particular, it turns out that the planet that they are going to visit has a stable government. It is suggested that the government is only stable because the Vulcans prop it up. Mm -hmm. Again, this would be the Vulcans achieving through logic the decision that propping up an unfair government because it serves their needs and creates stability in the region is better than having instability and potentially a planet that would not serve their purposes, which is this planet provides that's described as the largest shipyards and there's an, a, a mining agreement. And this is the second time that mining has been used by this writing team as a key element in a story, well, which I think is interesting. Yeah, well, for me, it's, it's the fact that the Vulcans broke the treaty is the Vulcans are lying. 
they're lying. And it's something, look, I think you're right where it's a missed opportunity because there's more about lying and Vulcans in this episode. But I think it's dealt with, in my opinion, too subtly. Yeah. And it felt like that was a theme that the show could have done so much more with over the course of the entire show of showing that the Vulcans are not what they seem. But they didn't pay off on that at all. So it's, it's like, it's, I'm, I'm yeah. torn. That's part of why it's like their, their, their argument about why Archer is bad and it's his fault. It comes from that point of view of like what you just described. They've got an empire. They make logical arguments for their benefit and they're able to do these contortions because what well, Vulcans can lie because they yes. use logic to work around it. So in that regard, yes, but I think it's not executed well. I agree. And it, it, it lays the, it lays the groundwork for things that in production came earlier Hmm. that Mm -hmm. if they had, if they had put into place a long-term plot of the Vulcans don't recognize it as such, but they effectively have an empire. They are propping up in some places, governments that are corrupt and unfair to their people, but they do it in the name of serving a logically arrived at it's better that we have stability and it's better that the Vulcan empire have access to what it needs. In some cases they lie outright to allies, they withhold from allies. And in some cases they lie to potential enemies in the name of the greater good. They go through logical puzzles that they leap through in order to be able to lie and withhold and do these things. And if the long-term story of enterprise had been about that eventually being exposed and broken down and it effectively causing the collapse within the Vulcan hierarchy, some kind of bottoming out, it would have led to a better understanding of the Vulcan's place in the original series and in later series where the Vulcans in those places are depicted as clearly intellectually superior but given that, why do they seem to operate with kind of a crestfallen attitude and a kind of subservience to Starfleet's largely yes. human population? Yes. A bottoming out of the Vulcan Empire, and I keep using the term empire while it's never officially part of, of any of this, I think effectively that is what is in place at this point. Yeah, I agree. And if there was a bottoming out of an empire, you effectively would have, it would be comparable to the, you know, the British empire falling apart slowly after World War II and still having a major role in global events, but not being what they had been 150 years earlier. Mm -hmm. The Vulcans are a bit chastised in the future. And to see in episode six of the original series films where you have a Vulcan underneath Spock effectively turn against Starfleet and become part of a conspiracy to start a war with the Klingon empire. Mm -hmm. The logical puzzles that she jumped through in order to get to that place were stunning in that movie because you'd never seen anything like it before. But now as viewers of this movie, of this television show, this episode in particular, we would know about those potential abilities of Vulcans to use logic to twist themselves up into knots to get to the conclusion they want to. 
all of that could have been demonstrated here on a much larger scale. Yes, agreed. And I think they touched on it in a couple of episodes, but they never went anywhere deeper with it. And it's unfortunate because I think the potential for that is a storyline of the humans really having a moment. If there had been an episode a year away from this episode where the humans look around and say, hey, you guys are almost as bad as the Klingons. You just don't shoot your weapons as much. Yep. It could have been a very interesting through line for the, for the series, especially considering that one of the points of the series is where does Starfleet come from? Where does the Federation come from? When there's contentiousness demonstrated, but it's almost as if they were afraid to make that contentiousness as taut as it could have been. Yeah, exactly. They, they seem to be afraid to push the envelope too far. So back to the plot that's right in front of us, what ends up happening is they, the ambassador suggests to Admiral Forrest, and we're still in the first scene, that's how much of a tangent that last <laughs> 10 minutes was. Uh, we'll try and get through the, the summary of the plot a little bit faster because we've already had such a, a big conversation around the heart of the matter. But the ambassador suggests that there should no longer be T'Pol should no longer have a role on the in in the Enterprise crew, and so just before heading toward Coradan, uh, the captain receives word from Forrest T'Pol is going to be recalled. She's going to be reassigned, and Archer is very upset because he sees this completely as a means of getting at him. They can't do anything to him or the Enterprise directly, so they're taking it out onto Paul. They're going to make her the fall guy for the destruction of Pajem. And because Archer wants to be able to have some time with T'Pol, he basically uninvites Trip from attending this tour of the Corridan shipyards and suggests that he's only going to take T'Pol with him. And the two of them are headed down to the planet in a shuttle pod when their shuttle pod is attacked and forced to land and then they are captured. It turns out that they are captured by a anti-government group and Treg is their leader. Treg shows up and suggests, yeah, the government that you are here to tour with is not my government. These are This is not as happy a place as everybody would want you to believe and it's only able to exist because it's propped up by the Vulcans. Meanwhile, about aboard the ship, a Vulcan ship arrives early to basically gather up to Paul. A Vulcan captain named Sopak shows up and says to Commander Tucker, you got to send me to Paul. And Tucker has to do a little bit of a song and dance saying, <laughs> uh, she's not here right now and neither is the captain because we have some problems. And there's a number of discussions around Sopek effectively shows up and says, I've been put in charge. Yep. The government of the planet initially tells the crew, don't bother trying to do anything with these people. You can't negotiate with them. And hopefully we'll be able to get your people back. And then Sopek shows up and says, well, good news. We're here now. We've been put in charge and we're going to go down and we're going to attack the camp where they may be and we're going to get your people back. And Trip 
and Lieutenant Reed are both of the mind, like, you've got to, like, there's got to be other ways of doing this. And Lieutenant Reed has a discussion with Tucker around thinking he knows where the the crewmen, where Archer and Paul might be. Um, based on sensor readings, they think they know where they might be. So they effectively lie to the Vulcans. So the Vulcans will leave and then they sneak down to the planet to, to scout out where they think that the shuttle might be. And while they're there, they themselves now are captured, but it turns out, <laughs> bum, 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 they're happily captured by Commander Shrek and a couple of his Andorian friends. And this is... <laughs> I love this. Yeah, this is a great sequence. I can't sleep. <laughs> yeah. Matt, you want to go into why why Shrek is there? Well, Shrek is there because he's um, he's he basically feels like he owes uh, Arch or something because he owes them a debt of gratitude for what they did on Pasham, and he hates having to owe somebody something. And he keeps saying throughout the episode, "I can't sleep." You know, it's it's keeping him awake. The fact that he owes somebody a huge favor, mm-hmm. and so he's basically been kind of shadowing the Enterprise and. It's basically coming to the rescue at just the right moment because they have been shadowing them. And I love that fact that they are so like they're basically like, I don't know, like uh, special forces almost like the Andorians are portrayed as this. They're really subversive and they're good at hiding and spying and doing Mm. like really covert stuff. And the Vulcans are the complete opposite of that. I just like the fact that they're been following them and nobody knew. I just I just love that little thing. I can't sleep at night. Yeah, they show up and they've been monitoring the Vulcan communications to the point that they know exactly what is going yes. on. Yep. And when they reveal that they're there for this reason, uh, Trip and Reed convince them, look, you double your chances by doubling the number of people doing this. Let us help you. We can work together to do this. They know that they're racing against the clock because they know the Vulcans are also potentially going to show up so they manage to find the camp and sneak in and they do a wonderful job of sneaking. As you said, mm-hmm. they, the depiction of, of the commando like operation includes trip tricking a couple of guards with some Andorian ale and, and distracting them while drinking with them while the Andorians are cutting through a wall. And I, one of the things that stood out to me is they did a great job of when the hole is cut in the wall and it falls away, you see a shadow that just has a couple of yeah, antenna antenna twirling. <laughs> and you mentioned the Andorians being depicted as being good at remaining covert and sneaking around. Physically, the use of the antennas in that way is yeah. a great way of indicating they've got this ability to like, kind of like understand their surroundings a little bit better than maybe yeah. the humans that they're able to know where people are because they have those antenna on their head. So they sneak in and at the same time, it turns out the Vulcans have begun their operation and it turns out, it turns into a full on phaser fight. And so the Vulcans come in shooting and while they're doing this, the Andorians and and the humans are trying to find where Archer and T'Pol are locked away. The Andorians had an operative who was working with the rebel group. So they <laughs> are able to get to them knowing where they are. That person unfortunately dies in the phaser <laughs> fight in the most ignominious stray well, bullet is, ever. 
But that was actually great because it was like the Vulcans are being sloppy in the way they're just charging in. And it's a Vulcan shot that yeah. ends up killing this guy. It's like it just shows how most likely everybody would have died if right. the Vulcans had just gone in the way they were going in. I, right. I, I love that. Oh, that poor guy. He never even got to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> so they end up getting Archer and T'Pol out of the holding area. And now that the firefight is over, it very quickly turns into... Everybody's pointing all their guns in every direction all at once. And yeah. I, I thought that the blocking of this scene was particularly awkward because they're all standing about 18 inches away from each other. Yeah. It looked like they yeah. picked the wrong spot to shoot this scene. Instead of showing any sort of space, at one point, the Andorians run up with their guns drawn and the Vulcans have their guns drawn. And there's a Vulcan and an Andorian and the tips of their guns are touching. Yes. And it just reeked of what? strangely awkward and poorly thought out. Like, can you, can somebody back up here? Could somebody <laughs> just take a few steps back? Yeah. So it turns into an argument about who's responsible for what and who's getting away with what. And as all of that is happening, Paul notices that one of the rebels is kind of slinking along in the background toward a rifle and is about to take a shot. And she ends up saving the life of Captain Sopek. The shot would have hit him square in the back. She pushes him out of the way. She gets hit in the side. And Archer immediately refuses to give T'Pol up to the Vulcans. And it would seem in that moment, just very cold logic, you would say, you got a Vulcan ship with a mm -hmm. Vulcan doctor and a hurt yes. Vulcan this Vulcan should go to the Vulcan ship where the Vulcan doctor could take care of them. But Archer has a bodyguard moment of he picks her up. She starts to sing, I will always love you. And he's like, no, she's part of my crew. She's going back to my ship. So we end up aboard the Enterprise where Dr. Phlox is working on T'Pol. She's unconscious and Captain Sopek comes in. What did you think of this final scene, Matt? What I liked about this scene was the subtle looks that they would give each other and that the doctor never lied, but mm. he left facts out. So right. he always gave honest responses to all of the questions that Sopak was asking, but was clearly leaving key details out to nudge Sopak in a specific direction because the two of them, Archer and and flocks were working together to try to kind of manipulate Sopek to do something. And I thought that was so wonderful. It was, a, it was just a nice, wonderful scene. I'm a, I'm a sucker for those wonderful little character moments where you mm -hmm. can see the bonds between the different characters on the Enterprise. And this is one of those scenes for me. Yeah, I like this scene a lot too. And it leads me to my listener question. And I'd love to hear people's response to this in the comments. What do you think Sopek's large logical argument to the Vulcan High Command would have been to go back? Because he is urged by Archer to reconsider what is effectively being done to Paul because of her demonstrated heroism in saving the life of a well-respected captain. And I'm wondering, does anybody have any thoughts about what his argument would be to go back and effectively effectively he does effectively make that argument but what was that argument yeah and is it as much about saving face in front of the andorians and not looking like 
that they're scurrying away from mistakes being made in front of the Andorians? Or is it about the Vulcan high command reconsidering because of logical arguments? Let us know what you think. I think that on the whole, this episode, like I said, it touches on certain things that could have potentially been very interesting places to explore. And I'm disappointed that it won't. It mm-hmm. It's, you know, the, the things that worked in this episode for me, uh, references to Vulcan and human interactions in the past. The fact that to Paul, it's described at one point, Flock says, you are not the first Vulcan to serve aboard a human starship. You're just the one that's actually doing it. Interesting background mm-hmm. there that we haven't, we haven't heard before. Uh, I also think that one of the things that works is the fact that it's, this episode is demonstrating what I talked about before that the Vulcan, the Vulcans have effectively been building an empire of influence without thinking of it as an empire. I think that this episode demonstrates that. Well, it's unfortunate that it may have been a byproduct, an accident it was they never went back and and visited again and for me one of the things that really stands out as a oh why did you do this i think it's a more egregious use of sexuality than the decon chambers uh including the the decon chamber scene in the first episode where trip and to paul have to swab each other down with what looks like vaseline while wearing their underwear this episode includes archer and to paul tied up while being held and tied together so that they have to figure out how to get themselves untied and they do so by twisting themselves around until they are face to face. And then when they fall over to Paul's breasts end up in Archer's face. It was such a slapstick. What are you doing moment? It's a slapstick. (laughs) What are you doing? And just it reeked of somebody at the network saying, got to sex it up. You got to sex it up. You got to get, you got to get those teenage boys to tune in and, just it just was gross yes i agree Um, completely it's like those anime shows where they sexualize the female characters where the show is great and then there'll be these random moments where something like just like this happens it's like wait wait, whoa whoa that just came out of nowhere it's really weird and out of place for the subject that we're talking about here there's also a couple things that I spotted amongst people's listings of potential bloopers in the episode. One that stood out was before the Vulcan ship arrives, uh, Reed is talking to Trip about scans where they think they've identified where the ship might be. But in the episode Civilization, I think this is important to remember, Civilization was written by the same writing team mm-hmm. and directed by the same director. And in that episode, they show that the Enterprise's visual systems can resolve objects down to such a minute level Mm -hmm. as to see what people are looking at in their hands. So at this point, couldn't they have zeroed in and actually potentially seen the shuttle? So this is this sloppy writing, sloppy writing. And then also people have pointed out that it appears in one of the scenes where you see T'Pol's blood as the result of an injury when she's eating. Uh, it looks like her blood is red. 
And of course, one of the biggest things that we know from Trekdom is that Vulcans have green blood. So she has green blood at the end when she gets shot. You can see her green blood in that scene. There's, there was a couple of things I kind of wanted to point out as things that yeah. I liked. Uh, I'm a sucker for all the character development. So there's some like in the beginning where uh, T'Pol is in Archer's uh, ready room and he's telling her the news of, you know, you're going to be taken away. Her very, she almost gets even more just clamped down than normal. And I thought that was a really nice... Jolene Blaylock, I think, is a better actress than people give her credit for because her yeah. nuance in that scene I thought was wonderful because she seemed to get even more rigid and Vulcan-like in that moment, mm-hmm. which was clearly showing that she was uncomfortable with what was going on, but was going to be a good soldier, a good Vulcan, and do what she was being told and was not going to fight it. Um, and then, of course, when they're going down to the the surface in the, in the shuttle pod and he... Archer basically comes out and says, I thought you'd wanted to do one more mission with your captain. And she's, he said, we, you know, do you want to do this? And she says, it would be foolish for us to go back to the ship. Now we'd waste. Yeah. It's like, it was just a nice, like she does want to have this one last mission with her captain, but she won't ever admit it. Right. So it's like those little, like, little scenes. And even when they were alone in the room tied up together, even though there was the stupid boob scene, there was nice conversations between the two of them that were along the same lines of him yeah. pushing her. Like, why are you not fighting this? And the two of them having wonderful moments together. And of course, at the very end, when they bring her, make her awake after Sopek leaves. And she's saying, you, you made this decision on my behalf. That's not fair. This was my choice. Yeah. You shouldn't have done what you did. And he says, well, you know, they're not gone yet. You could go right. chase them down and you yeah. could do this. And then she just kind of in a logical way says, well, that would be disobeying my doctor's orders. And yeah. Lays down and stays in the bed. So it's like, I love those like little tender moments where you can see the character development building and the camaraderie building between everybody. But to go to the kind of what doesn't work, what we talked about in the beginning with the Vulcans lying and the logical loops that they do, the part where T'Pol just bold face lies to their captors about he's the steward you know, and yeah. then basically says, I'm, I'm in charge. It's a great moment because it's in, in one way, because it's like, she recognizes I have to protect my captain. Right. I'm going to protect my captain no matter what I have to do. But the fact of how easily she lies, we've never seen her do that to that extent. Like right. we've talked before where she's done omissions of truth to create those kind of moments this was no omission. She was just straight up lying about who right. the captain was. And that for me was kind of jarring. But to tie back to what you were talking about of like, this shows the greater empire and how they can do logical loops to justify the ends, justify the means through these logical right. loops. She clearly did that in that yeah. moment. But once again, it comes across as a complete accident. Uh, that's not what the writers probably were intending to do yeah. with a greater vision of Vulcans. They were clearly doing that because they had to, to get the plot moving and to get things to happen the way they wanted them. To. Yeah. So it, it, it came across as it's sloppy writing, but there was so much potential there. It's like, we've kind of seen her get influenced over the course of the, the season of becoming not more human like, but becoming more open to thinking outside of her Vulcan right. box. And so it's like, I, it kind of shows yeah. that growth, but it was sloppily done. Yeah. I agree with you. It falls in the same camp for me as, wow, that had such potential if that had taken the next step. And if the next step was the door is closed, if Archer said, Vulcans don't lie. 
Because they even if, said that to her. And if they even said that to her in that moment. Yeah. And it's Vulcans and don't it's, lie, so we believe you. Right. They said it. They brought <laughs> yes. it up. Vulcans don't lie, so we believe you. They leave. Archer's response when the door is shut could have just simply been to look at her, raise an eyebrow and say, Vulcans don't lie. And have her then say, I recognized what needed to be done. It was about saving my captain. Yeah. Like and and getting him to have a moment where he could say to her with a little smile, so Vulcans lie when it's convenient. To right. say something along the lines of like, I'm starting to see how you operate. Yes. I'm getting to know you just as you're getting to know me. It could have, yep. it could have really touched on that. Overall, I think that the episode, while it has some inconsistencies, I enjoyed it on the whole. Mm-hmm. It felt like, okay, this is, this is very Trek and it follows. I love the fact that it follows holding hands with a great previous episode. I love it yes. when you have those larger through lines. Uh, Jeffrey Coombs coming back to play Commander Shrek. I think great actor, great mm-hmm. character. Love all the episodes of the Andorians because of him and what they're doing with him. But one of the things that stood out for me, and I wanted to take a deeper look at this, was this episode has one of my favorite that guys in it. Uh, that guy, of course, most of you will know is a actor or actress when they show up and you're like, oh, I love this person when they're in stuff and they're in <laughs> everything and you might not even really know their name or exactly what they've been in, but you've seen them in stuff and you like them and they're always good. And for me, the that guy is the actor who played their captor, Treg. It's oh, yeah. played by Jeff Kober. Jeff he's Kober, everything. He's, he's a that guy. And yeah. he is typically a that guy that you see with makeup on his face. You're typically yeah. seeing him play a heavy. You're seeing him play dark. And depending on what he's in, he might even be monstrous. But Cobra may be best known as Dodger in China Beach. It was one of his earliest roles in his career. China Beach was a an attempt to kind of recapture the magic of MASH, but transplanting it to the Vietnam War. It doesn't work because of that. Vietnam War had a much different um, cultural impact than the Korean War did. And so while MASH was philosophically actually about the Korean, the Vietnam War, China Beach was kind of an exhausted topic for its audience when it premiered in the 80s. And Cobra was in it as Dodger. He played a Marine. He was also in a short-lived series that was on Fox. I remember it was called Kindred the Embraced. And he played Daedalus. And I actually watched this ep- this series. It lasted, if I remember correctly, about six episodes before Fox was like, that's enough of that. <laughs> and it was the story of uh, a family, different families of vampires that live in Los Angeles in basically clans. And Cobra's role as Daedalus was he was the head of the clan that basically looked like Nosferatu vampires. So while other vampires had the ability to masquerade as humans and go into human society and look like humans. Daedalus was the bat-skinned, shriveled face, teeth sticking out of the mouth, pointed ears, totally inhuman. Uh, And he played the role great. He has also been in guest appearances on series, and it's quite a list now, get ready. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, CSI, ER, 24, The Closer, New Girl, 
Criminal Minds, Star Trek Voyager, of course, here, Star Trek Enterprise. And he played the character Julian Bradley in the two-part 1985 episode Monster, part one and two on Highway to Heaven. He was in Sons of Anarchy and The Walking Dead. (laughs) That's quite a list. In 2020 alone, he was on the series Bosch, Big Dogs, and Church of Mike. And of course, then you may all remember that the wheels fell off of most of Hollywood because of the pandemic. So during two years of the pandemic, 2020 and 2021, he's been on General Hospital. (laughs) And in those two years, he's appeared on 150 episodes. Whoa. So. (laughs) Wow. Jeez. Yeah. Good for him. So he has been uh, continuing to work. And I, I just a tip of the hat to Mr. Cobra. I've always been a fan. He's always fun to see because he's very capable in whatever role and he can do comedy as well as being the monstrous guy in, in the monster suit. Um, in particular, if anybody's interested in seeing his comedic work, watch in some of the earliest seasonal seasons of new girl which of course is a sitcom he plays the landlord he plays the super for the apartment building where the main characters live and he is more than interested in having a three-way with whatever (laughs) of the roommates want to join him he plays it really brilliantly as a very very creepy man so next time we'll be discussing the episode shuttle pod one Matt, any predictions about what we'll be talking about on that episode? I think we're probably going to be talking about a shuttle pod. Mm -hmm. Any idea which one? Not number two. Okay. So, reminder to everybody who wants to try and directly support the podcast, you can go to pod.fan slash trekintime. That's with dashes between the words. Trekintime. You'll find a jar there where you can throw some coins. And if you don't have the ability to provide that kind of support just listening and viewing on YouTube or from your favorite podcast provider. Both of those are great ways to support us as well. Matt, before we sign off, is there anything you want to let people know about coming out of your other channels? I would say to listen to Still To Be Determined, which is another podcast with the gentleman I'm talking to right now. (laughs) It's the follow-up podcast to my YouTube channel, Undecided. We kind of do feedback from viewers and we kind of go a little deeper into the topics. It's a a very fun show. And as usual from me, I would direct people to my website, seanfarrell.com, where you can just look for my books on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble or wherever you buy your books, including your public library. Thanks so much for checking that out if you're able to. And if anybody has any comments or corrections, please do reach out. We love to find out that we referred to somebody as a Klingon when they're actually a human. Or that the phaser was actually in the cell. (laughs) You can find our contact information in the podcast notes, or you can just scroll down beneath the YouTube video you may be watching right now and leave a comment directly below the video. Please do remember to subscribe, to like the episode, and to share it widely with your friends and strangers, and to come back next time. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Talk to you next time. Bye.